Welcome to episode 12 from MOSIF's APIs over IPAs podcast network. I'm Lawrence Ebringer, your host today, and the Chief Marketing Officer of MOSIF, the API observability platform. Joining me is Alyssa Knight, CISO, cybersecurity expert, cinematographer, and accomplished content creator for telling brand stories at scale. She's a regular conference speaker, which is incidentally where I first saw her as the keynote on API Days' interface conference. She was giving a fascinating talk on security in healthcare apps, and I thought our audience would love to hear her perspectives on API security. So here we are. Welcome, Alyssa. Where in the world do we find you? <laughs> so first of all, thanks, Larry. That was a great intro. I always feel bad for people when they have to give my bio and introduce me because it feels like it could just go on forever. <laughs> so I'm going to start having people just introduce me as, you know, that security chick, that hacker chick, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, no, thanks for having me on your show. Uh, it's a real honor to be here. Thank you so much. Great. Um, well so I'm, I'm in Las Vegas. I like a lot of people don't know people live here. <laughs> it's not just for coming for conferences, uh, but people actually do live here. We, uh, my wife and I live in an area called Summerlin, uh, which is about 20 minutes from the strip. Great. Great. Well, um, it's great to have you on the show and we're um, really Thanks, honored Larry. that you're going to share your perspectives on security with us. When I just, as, yeah. a, as a quick side note, when I went mentioned to my family that I was hosting you on our podcast, one of my 12 year old daughters asked if you were white hat or black hat, the nuanced oh. language, <laughs> the nuanced language of technology has become so mainstream that even preteens are familiar with it. So on that note, why don't you share with us your maybe a bridge journey from black hat to white hat, starting two cybersecurity companies, and then on to today running Night Inc. Media. So that's amazing that she, even a 12-year-old, knows uh, the, the, the idiosyncratic distinctions between black hat and white hat. Um, so great question, and I think a great way to start the show off. I started out hacking when I was around 13 years old. Um, that was, unfortunately, I had very little guidance. Um, and, but things were very different back then, right? You're talking about, you know, the, the, of a different time when there wasn't all of these resources available that are available to you today. Um, you know, SANS, even Google wasn't a thing back then. Uh, I got involved in, in hacking through IRC. Uh, there was, there's this IRC server, internet relay chat called FNET. And I was very involved in these FNet IRC channels. And so that really was my family, right? Because I mean, I spent more time online than interacting with my actual family. Uh, so I, they pretty much raised me. I grew up on IRC. Um, and in these channels, learned through other people, learned on my own. At the time, there was very little knowledge out there, we have access to so much knowledge these days with Google and with all of these things, all of these resources. And back then it was really difficult to learn. You really had to learn things on your own. And so fast forward to when I was 17, I made a very bad decision and hacked a government network, got caught. They arrested me at school, believe it or not. 
and um, went to uh, after the charges were dropped, ended up working for the U.S. intelligence community in cyber warfare. So I was forced into the white hat role. I looked terrible in orange. I just was, yeah, prison wasn't for me. Um, I, I, I went from black hat to white hat outside of my own control. And it's good because, you know, I realized, I realized who I was, I figured out who I was and, you know, I was, I, I, it, it was clear to me that I could make a significant amount of money doing what I love most. And that was hacking and thus was born, you know, penetration testing slash ethical hacking and, you know, actually hacking company networks and explaining to them how we did it in order for them to defend themselves against the real attacker. Great. Wow. Yes. I'm th- I don't think anyone looks um, that good in orange. Um. <laughs> <laughs> orange is not the new listenite. <laughs> Funny, right? <laughs> Um, so in one of your great YouTube videos, which by the way, I recommend our listeners to tune into, you gave a splendid definition of a hacker. Um, and it was mm. someone who wants to understand how something works and then send a stimulus that the developer didn't expect or account for. So really not yeah. that nefarious as one would imagine. And also um, on your YouTube uh uh, and on your, on your blog content, you really back up all of your claims with great empirical data, um, which which really makes it a lot more valuable. So as someone sure. who has sat on both sides of the table, so to speak, and written extensively about hacking banking and health tech APIs, and now I just heard a government network, um, and also uh, someone who... Um, presented to Gartner recently about what you thought about API security. <laughs> what are the Quite most, ironic. Indeed. What, what are the most common mistakes that developers make when it comes to API security? Mm, good question. I think for me, the most systemic issue is developers will remember to authenticate the API request, but they'll fail to authorize it. So it's it's understanding the distinctions between authorization and authentication. Authentication being something that you have, something that you know, something that you are, um, you know, versus authorized to actually view the data. Um, so I may have a token or a key, an API token or an API key, to be able to to prove that I I have a legitimate user account, I have legitimate access to the API to be able to send API calls, but I'm not authorized to receive the data that I'm requesting. And this is a problem across all of the APIs that I've, I've looked at where there was just an, an, a lack of authorization, um, specifically around what are called broken object level authorization vulnerabilities or BOLA. And so, you know, if you look at the mHealth APIs, 100% of those that I tested all had BOLA vulnerabilities. And so for the for our listeners who don't really fully understand what that means, it's it's the best analogy that I like to use is the whole coat check thing, right? Like if you and I went to a cocktail party and you know you, I saw you check in your expensive Burberry coat into the coat check and I wanted to take that home, you were given the number 18 from the coat check person and I was given 17 
And I just take a Sharpie and I change that seven to an eight and give it back to the coach. I can say, I want my coat. That's a great example of a bowl of vulnerability. I'm authenticated, meaning I have a ticket, but I'm not authorized to take home your Burberry coat. So the, that's basically how authorization vulnerabilities work. Great. And uh, you actually preempted one of my latter questions about Bowler. Um, so <laughs> Sorry. How, oh, that's okay. How, so uh, tell us, how can, you, how can we protect, how can our developers protect against um, such Bowler attacks? So there's different things you can do. So, you know, one of the things that I noticed is a lot of developers will implement tokens, but they won't implement scopes. Right. So a really big recommendation is if you're going to implement tokens like OAuth, right, you want to make sure that you tie scopes to those tokens, which defines the level of access or the records that you're allowed to see. Right. It basically sets parameters around, okay, here's your token and this is what you are permitted to be able to request. So if I'm a clinician, for example, and I have a login through those scopes, I can only view these specific patients. Or if I'm a patient, my scope for my token should only allow me to see my patient records, not slash patient slash one, two, three, four, five, you know, uh, all of these other patient records. I should only be able to just request my specific patient record. Um, that's, that's one fix for it. Uh, there's obviously commercial solutions uh, that implement can where you can implement this as well. But it's a lot of the vulnerabilities that I'm finding aren't, you know, they're they're just they're as basic as authorization issues. They aren't, you know, it's not like they're SQL injection or anything that's other, you know, like web application firewalls. Uh, legacy WAFs are are looking for rules based security controls are looking for. Um, they're, they, they tend to be more logic-based vulnerabilities. That's something that a rules-based security control won't be able to see. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. So on that subject of rule-based WAFs like mod security or even API gateways, mm -hmm. which um, I, I note that in one of your recent YouTube postings, you um, effectively said are pretty useless for protecting your API. <laughs> I'm and you pretty opinionated. <laughs> right. And you, and you, funnily enough, I think it was the 2019 report from Gartner protecting your APIs where they espoused the virtues of API gateways. And then you mm. were on Gartner and you basically shot that down. Um, is there I don't think they like me very much over there. <laughs> Is there anything else that can be done, perhaps like advanced anomaly detection um, that can further protect your APIs? Look here, this is so, this is my position on it. I don't think that security should ever be a feature of a product, a, 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 right? So like, for example, when you have an API gateway, they're adding security in as a feature to their primary responsibilities. Um, you know, for me, uh, that's a concern, right? Web application firewalls, especially legacy WAFs, and, and Gartner actually put a report out on this as well. Um, in their report, they said that web application firewalls were an effective security control against APIs. And this is uh, something I could go on all day about. Uh, with, you know, pay for play and the analyst industry and stuff like that, but I won't go there. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is, and I think it's creating this false sense of security because CISOs are buying WAFs 
and they're implementing API gateways and turning on security. And it's making it's it's creating this false sense of security. Every single one of the APIs that I hacked in my most recent healthcare breaches were protected by WEFs. You know, there there's these so CISOs are listening to th- this information coming out from the else industry who have to print and talk about it because those are their paying clients. So they have to talk about them. But the problem is, is that they're not an effective security control against API attacks. How is a WAF going to know whether or not I should be requesting data that doesn't belong to me? It's going to be looking for things like SQL injection in the payload, cross-site scripting attacks, that sort of thing. But it's not going to know whether or not I'm authorized to see something or not. That's outside of its its realm of understanding. Um, I forgot your question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what well, was I, mean, I think I I think I answered like three fourths of it. What was the other part? <laughs> well, really, I mean, you did, but um, really, the question was around if WAFs and API gateways don't swing it, how can you protect your APIs? And in fact, I think you touched upon. Um, a very cogent point, which I heard actually, again, in one of your YouTube channels, which is a lot of CISOs and developers view security as an afterthought or a bolt-on. And you said, don't do that. You should take the importance of security from the get-go. So would you like to expand upon that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So one of the things I want to do is I want to preface this answer with the fact that any organization that has APIs needs to know what's going to their APIs. They need to know, is it human traffic, legitimate human traffic? Is it synthetic traffic? Or is it an ATO tool, like an account takeover tool or credential stuffing attack? Um, are you looking for high frequency sort of um, tools that are consistently pounding your APIs and stealing very expensive bandwidth? and resources from legitimate users, everyone should know what they've got. And you can't protect what you don't know you have. That's incredibly important. Um, So I want to preface this with that you should know what's inside the traffic going to your APIs. Now, having said that, um, you know, one of the most important things is, I agree, shift left security, but also Larry, shield right. And that's when you're the concept of shift left security is that when you're writing the code, you should be sending your developers to secure code training. You should be implementing a tool that will kind of watch watch out for them uh, to to be writing insecure code and yell at them when they are. Look for a solution that you can compile an SDK with the with the app if you've got an app based architecture. Um, sorry, a, a mobile app for example, and you want to compile an SDK with that um, and you know, so I, I shift left security, implement security while the product's being created, while the code is being written. Shield right is the idea that, okay, not only are you securing it while it's being written, but after it's been deployed into production, right? Because we know that cybersecurity is a very fleeting industry. It's very, it's, it moves very quickly. Um, several new zero day exploits came out just in the period of you and I talking right now. You know, there, there's new exploits and new vulnerabilities every every few minutes. So 
you need to shield right in anticipation for what's to come, the unknown unknowns, right? That's what's getting everyone right now. And that's what's getting a lot of people right now is they're being breached by the unknown unknowns. And so, you know, the, the knowns are things that to me is legacy security controls like network intrusion detection, like the old snort days when you were writing snort signatures for these exploits, you were taking known, you were, you were basically documenting known knowns, but what about the unknown unknowns, right? So I don't know what I don't know yet, you know? And so that is where shield right can take us into the future for the things that we don't know about. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. I, I think that the, um, I just finished the book from Nicole Pearl Roth. On... Oh, Pearl Roth. That, but yeah, yeah. what, the, this is how they tell me the world ends. That's right. I actually just, I, I just interviewed her. I don't oh, know if really? you saw that, but I interviewed, yeah, I interviewed her on money 2020 on uh Moneyfest uh, uh, about her book. So if you haven't seen it yet, I'd urge you and your audience to go see it. It's a great book. She's a brilliant brilliant uh, journalist for the New York Times. She's, right. she's amazing. Right. And uh, fa fascinating. I mean, the book is long and thick, a weighty tomb, but it <laughs> reads like a, it reads like a crime thriller. It's brilliant. It's and of course, crazy, it's, yeah. it's all fact. And it is, I mean, yeah. the, the whole exploit industry, how it started off in the early noughts, 00102 was really, really fascinating. Um, yeah. Great perspective on shift left, uh, shield right. I love that uh, graphic analogy. Um, moving on a little bit more into, since MOSIF is used in a bunch of health tech apps, moving on a little bit into health tech. Um, in your experience, is uh, EPHI, patient healthcare information, or personal banking information more valuable on the dark web and why? Ooh, I actually did research into this. This is a great question. So obviously in with the work that I do, uh, I'm browsing, you know, tour sites a lot and, and just dark websites a lot. And one of the things that I can tell you is that electronic health records are worth a thousand times more than a US credit card number. So when you have a PHI record, EHR record, whatever you want to call it. Um, you have a lot of data, right? So if I, if I, if I compromise target and I, and, and in that compromise, I steal Larry's credit card number, your bank can very quickly send you out a new card and, you know, it costs a few bucks to the bank. They send you out a new card. You've got a brand new card. You're fine. If I compromise your health history and put that up for sale on the dark web, how easy is it for you to get new health history sent to you in the mail? It's impossible. There's no such thing, right? It's gone once it's out there and it, it's done, right? If I want to figure out how to kill, kill Larry, I, I find out, I grab his PHI and I find out he's allergic to bee stings. So, you know, I go after you with some bumblebees, you know, but you can't undo that once it's done, right? That's one of the reasons why I believe it's worth so much. The other thing is having compromised so many healthcare APIs, I can tell you that there is a treasure trove of data in there. Um, 
where I even not only saw the admission records for a hospital in one of them, but also the family member information of that individual. So when you, when you go into the hospital, they're asking for next of kin information, all this other stuff, all this other data that they're going to need to know, including pictures, their photographs of patients. So this is a very content rich, uh, you know, environment, a very data rich environment. There's a lot of data on individuals within PHI records, which is why we need to take this so seriously. And which is really the impetus for a lot of my healthcare research, because, you know, um, I, when you're talking about people's health, it's way different than defacing a corporate website. So much has changed over the last two decades. You know, I mean, before it used to be about defacing websites when I was hanging out on IRC and doing this, I mean, it was all about, Hey, you know, Rafa was here, world of hell, mass defacement. And now it's muddy. It's, it's, it's such a lucrative business to be in. You know, when you talk about dark side and the tens of millions of dollars that these ransomware groups are bringing in, um, it's insane. I mean, a lot of these ransomware groups are bringing more money than some countries have, <laughs> you know, they have more cash on hand than some large companies, some of the largest companies in countries. Um, so it's scary. It's a huge business. And, and the answer to your, the long winded answer to your question is PHI is definitely worth way more than financial data. Right. Right. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Um, and that's not to say, and don't, don't get me wrong, Larry, that's not to say that it's less important. It's just, it, it just uh, demands a much smaller amount of money than PHI. Got it. Got it. Um, well, given that, that the, uh, PHI and the EHR um, patient records are so valuable. Um, are there unique challenges to locking down health tech APIs versus maybe those from, say, fintech? Mm. I think probably it's it's the weakest link in security kind of thing, right? So different healthcare providers will use different EHR systems, whether it's Epic or Cerner or whatever, fill in the blank here. Those systems prior to, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this, but prior to fire um, could not talk to each other. There's problems where, for example, um, if, if I'm targeting something like a Cerner uh, EHR system that may be very, very, very well protected and very secure. But as soon as those, those PHI records, that those, those EHR records, you know, whatever, sorry, there's so many different acronyms for this. I'm just like, let's just call it PHI. So once that PHI leaves that system and goes to a less secure API, where do you think I'm going to target as a hacker? I'm going to target the less secure API. I'm going to go after the path of least resistance. I think that's one of the biggest problems um, that you ask about is, is this chain of custody or weakest link in security issue where PHI can go from a very secure API to a less secure API because the person who wrote is just some small business, doesn't know what they're doing, created this API and didn't know anything about security. And I robbed them and you know, I, I robbed Paul instead of Peter. So um, that's one thing. Uh, I think the second thing also is the uh, the prevalence, and I would 
dare to even say it's it's very systemic across all of the a lot of the mobile apps that I looked at, where with this new concept of M Health or mobile health apps, where API keys and tokens are being stored in clear text or hard coded in clear text in these mobile apps, and developers just saying throwing their arms up in there and say, hey, you know. What am I, where am I supposed to store them if I can't store them in the app, you know, not really knowing where to put them. And so it's, it's a real problem. I think there's problems on the app side where keys are getting credentials are getting hard coded. And then on the back end where the APIs are, it's, it's, it's a problem. Right. Right. Can you talk to a little bit more about the different attack surfaces that EPHIs could be compromised over and perhaps what could be done to harden them? Like we, you covered a little bit about the apps themselves, the maybe the key stores, the network, the API endpoints, and also then the data lakes. Sure, yeah. I mean, there's just obviously data everywhere. The whole concept of castle and moat is completely erased at this point. Data is everywhere. You can't control it. Um, so f- definitely on the client side, this, the hard coding of keys and tokens or credentials. Um, that's the real problem. You have different types of APIs. So if you want to talk about the different attack services, you have partner-facing APIs. And Larry, supply chain attacks are a real threat today. Like it's, it, it, I don't even have to go after you from the internet. I can just find out who you're doing business with and go after them. And then find out that there's connectivity between the two of you through a partner API, a B2B API that's just face, facing the two of your companies. And I'm in because, you know, whoever wrote it felt, well, this is a partner facing API. It's not facing the internet. So we don't have to worry as much about security. Right. Um, so there's that. Um, you have, you know, web APIs. Right. And so when you have a web API where you're, you don't have a mobile app, uh, the security controls on the client side are going to be far different, right? So whereas you can compile an SDK with a mobile app to add that additional layer of security, what do you do about the web APIs where you can't necessarily compile a Chrome browser with the SDK you know, or get Google to distribute that for you? Um, there's also the concern over women in the middle slash man in the middle slash person in the middle attacks you know, where you have a lot of organizations that are not implementing certificate pinning. So what I'm able to do as an attacker with a lot of these apps is insert myself in between the communication between the client and the backend API and submit SSL certificates in both directions, tell the API that I'm the client, and then tell the API client that I'm the API server, the API endpoint. And both think they're talking to each other and they're really talking to me. And that allows me to decrypt the SSL encrypted traffic and look at it. And I can learn how the API works that way just by intercepting the traffic and decrypting it and then copying and pasting those API requests into my own API client like Postman and then start going after the API endpoint myself manually with an API client. Got it. Yeah, I actually, um, I followed one of your tutorials recently on how to actually do that. And it was surprisingly straightforward. I'm, I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm, not, you. I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm not a super great coder. In fact, I'm not a coder at all. Uh, but oh. it was very, uh, very straightforward and a little bit shocking that you could with Postman and some 
some packages some you can that, download yeah. onto your Mac that you could pull all of that information out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Homebrew makes it surprisingly simple. It's it's like a package manager, like Red Hat RPM. But right. yeah, it's uh, it's really powerful. I mean, and, and a lot of these tools are free downloads, right? You know, you have freemium models. Um, and a lot of these kinds, like, for example, I think it's called Arc uh, API REST client. Um, that's a free download. Like you don't, the thing is, is that when you're hacking, and, and that's what I understand, a lot of developers will implement security. It says, oh, don't worry. We look to make sure that the, the mobile app isn't being run on a jail-rooted or jailbroken phone or rooted phone. I don't care about that. I don't need to run it on a jailbroken phone. A lot of these API attacks, I just extract the APK off my Android device and then load it into my tools on my workstation using APK extractor, which you can download from the Google store, ironically enough, and um, and just drop and just drop that APK file right into a lot of my tools on my workstation. There's no, I don't need to, you know, execute it. I don't need to run it in a, in a jail-rooted environment. I can just do all this from my laptop, from my workstation, or run it on the Android device and intercept the traffic with a with a tool and have access to all the data. So that's actually, believe it or not, I prefer to do it that way rather than looking at the API documentation. A lot of the banks and healthcare providers, well, with Fire, there's a lot of documentation out there on it because they, you know, the point is that you develop for it. Um, so there's a lot of documentation. Um, but I prefer to actually intercept the traffic and look at it. I'm I'm a packet monkey. I, I I tend to learn better looking at packets and looking at how the API works that way at the layer three level rather than just reading documentation RTFMing. Yeah, yeah. Great. I know I noticed that you are a grep um big uh yeah, I'm a um, grep proponent. Girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm a grep girl. I you know, even with for example, Mob SF. Wow, you did watch all my videos, didn't you? Um, but, uh, thanks for stalking me. I appreciate that. Um, uh, love, love my fans. Um, but you know, that's, there's a great tool out there called mob SF for your audience that may not be familiar with it. It's called the mobile security framework and it allows you to actually, so you drag it, literally drag and drop the packet APK file into the tool and it just deconstructs it. It just takes it apart, reverses it back to the original source code. That's how I'm able to find all these hard coded keys and tokens. But, um, the interesting thing about that is, and much to your point, is I don't like to use the GUI. I'll actually use that to have it reversed back to the source code. Then I just go into my command shell into terminal and use a bunch of grep and aux strings. So you know that's that's my preferred way of approaching it to find hard coded API secrets in in apps. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. So great segue into the work of HL7 and mm. the uh, their recently um, to be released latest version of the FIRE, uh, Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources Standard. How important is that work? Um, should developers be building uh, to the latest FIRE standard? And what's your perspective on how important this will be for the API security industry in healthcare? Well, it's not important at all. If I'm working, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, um, if I'm working on it, it's very important. No, um, I'm not that full of myself. Um, but no, uh, I look. This is this is huge. This is probably out of all of my vulnerability research, the most 
important thing that I've ever worked on because, you know, I've had so many people from across healthcare sector, um, you know, just a lot of different people reach out and talk about how important this research is. And a lot of people don't know this, but they automatically assume just hackers come out of the womb knowing this stuff. Like I had no idea how to spell fire, let alone knew what the hell it was when I walked into this. Um, I had to do my homework. I had to research. I didn't even know who the heck HL7 was. I'm like, wait, HL7 is the name of the organization and it's the name of the standard. So it's like the whole Kleenex tissue. Anyway, (laughs) you know, I mean, there's, there's all this um, that I needed to research and understand. And so it took me months, like months, and I still don't know all of it. I still don't fully understand a lot of it. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this research. I'm currently diving into R4 of of Fire, which is release four of the standard. Um, it's it was it was created uh, by HL7 International, Health Level Seven International, like you mentioned. Um, and before fire, there were all these other different versions of HL7 that predated fire. Um, so different releases of HL7, and then they arrived at fire. Um, and the ONC has uh, basically set these deadlines for healthcare payers and healthcare providers and said, you need to make this patient data available to people requesting it. Otherwise, you're in violation of this data blocking rule, information blocking rule, you're in violation of it. It can mean stiff penalties and fines. Like it's a big deal if you if you are found guilty of this information blocking rule. And so there's a deadline around this and organizations, healthcare pairs and providers need to implement fire APIs and make this healthcare data available. The only thing is, is that I wanted to show what could happen when these APIs aren't secured properly. And so that's the impetus to this research. And so, you know, that's what I've been focused on over the last, really over the last year. Phase one of this research was targeting mHealth APIs, where I'm targeting mobile healthcare APIs that's storing medical data. And now in part two, which we're calling playing with fire. Yes, the puns are endless with FHIR. Um, but, but in phase two, we're focused on hacking fire APIs and that's what our, that's what this report coming out will, will detail and some of our findings and and what we're seeing out there. And, and there's a lot, there's definitely a lot. And I'm really excited. I'll be unveiling that research at the upcoming HIMSS conference where I'll be keynoting this year. And, um, I know you guys are doing a lot in the healthcare space as well. So yeah, there's, there's, this is a very target rich environment healthcare. There's so much money there um, and hackers know it. And there's just so much data and, and it's, it's through these vulnerable APIs, very easy to get access to. So, uh, um, you you know, poking the bear here, but um, if R4 is coming out um, and you've been working on it and, you know, lots of other clever people have been working on it, um, are there going to be many vulnerabilities after it's released, or is it going to be the nirvana of um, secure health, M, M health, and uh, EPHI over APIs moving forward? So, I need to clarify for your audience that 
when you deploy fire, you're not literally kind of going to Best Buy and buying, yes, I'd like a shrink wrapped fire API, please. And, and make sure to include that security with it. And then it's just deployed. Uh, it's, it's, it's going to be based on implementation, right? So one organization may implement a fire API, but didn't follow best practice and have it be completely vulnerable. But another organization can implement fire APIs and have that be rock solid and, you know, not having it immediately evident where vulnerabilities are. Maybe it'll take much longer than the other organization to find one. But because I'll never say that anything is not hackable, right? If, 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 if humans are implementing it, it's going to have vulnerabilities, but it's just harder to find and longer. But so that's the thing about fire is you and I could both implement fire APIs to serve our PHI records, but yours may be way more secure than mine because I don't know what I'm doing and I implemented insecurely. So it depends on the implementation to answer your question. It depends on who's implementing it and whether they know, know or not how to secure it properly. So there's smart on fire, right? Which, which brings in OAuth and all these other things. Um, you know, authentication, authorization. And, you know, so implementing FHIR, of course, is, is very heavily predicated on the, it's very heavily predicated on the implementer and whether or not they implemented it properly. Now, I do want to throw a wrench into here, Larry. Um, there's actually a certification process that organizations can go through to have their FHIR APIs certified. So if you're going to implement a Fire API and I'm going to implement one, I can actually go and get my Fire API certified as being implemented according to the standard and the proper security controls in place. And you can continue to run Fire APIs but not be certified. It's not, it's not compulsory, right? You're not, you're not required to get your certified. The EHR vendors that I've spoken to in this research, they're pursuing certification, of course. But you can have non-certified and certified APIs, which means that there's going to be a very big mix of vulnerable and not vulnerable APIs. <clears throat> Let me be careful when I say that, because I'm not saying that a certified API is going to be secure and unhackable. I'm just saying that you're going to have a mix of the two. Right. It's, it sounds like it's a little bit like HIPAA compliance. There is no yeah. third-party certification body there are best practices that you should follow and there are people who yeah. audit what you've built but <clears throat> HIPAA is basically a bunch of guidelines that you should follow and then um i suppose it's up to you know putting your product out there in the marketplace and um and seeing if it is that secure when after you followed HIPAA compliance. Sounds like though that HL7 has gone one step further where there are third party bodies who can um, uh, check that you've implemented FHIR um, to the best. According to the, yeah, according to standard. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, and the uh, one of the EHR vendors that I spoke to, I won't name them, but um, did say that they were pursuing certification by the end of the year, which, and based on what they told me, would make them the first company to get their fire. Um, and 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 you have these different releases, right? These different versions of fire. There's different versions, and one 
particular version being more closely aligned to the, you know, the certified version uh, that you could have is in getting your, your fire pay certified who the actual organization is that's doing the certification accreditation. I don't know. I want to say it's maybe it's, maybe it's HL seven. I don't know. Um, I'm sure it's someone, but uh, yeah, so you can, you can definitely, you have the option to go and get it certified or not. And much to your, your example, it's, it's, it's not, you're not required to. Got it. Got it. Great. Well, we've covered a lot on our podcast today that you've given a lot of fantastic insights on how to protect your APIs in general and your uh, mHealth and your um, health tech APIs in particular. Um, as a final takeaway or penultimate takeaway, what's next for APIs and security that we haven't seen yet? Yeah, so I, I think hashtag more, please. I think it's, I think, you know, we're, we're moving and this is a great way to close out, close out the show and the interview. But I mean, I think first of all, that's a great question. And and I think if, if I were to kind of put my fortune teller hat on, I think this is definitely the direction the world is headed. We have completely, you know, we're, we're moving completely away from monolithic architecture and moving to microservices. Everything is moving to the cloud. Everything is microservices powered by APIs. I, I think we're just going to see more and more of this. And the problem is, is that organizations are going to go from running one to two APIs to one to 2000, right? I'm working with an organization right now that has over 1600 APIs, right? These are, that's a lot of APIs. So, we're going to, I think this is going to create a much bigger marketplace. I, one of the things that um, coming out of the presentation to Gartner on the state of the API security marketplace is that it's a, it's going through an identity crisis right now. The API security marketplace doesn't really know what it is yet. There's every org, every company out there with an API security threat management solution um, believes that they're the right way to do it. And that's not necessarily false, right? Every single company may may be doing the right approach to API security, but the, I think the jury is still out on where that will land. Um, you know, is it inline? Is it passive? Uh, you know, uh, do we use SDKs? Do we use distributed tracing? Do we use, there's all these great, amazing approaches. A lot of them are my clients, you know, and they've all great, they all have great solutions. Um, what the actual best approach is, I, I don't know if, there will ever be an answer to that. But I know what the wrong approach is. And we talked about that here on the show. And that's these legacy-based rules-based systems like web application firewalls. Or let's throw an API, you know, we've got an API management solution in there. Let's have just have that do security. You know, so I think through my research in showing that I can hack and breach these APIs and steal all of these thousands of patient records by APIs that are protected by WAFs and API gateways is proving that no one should be using these to secure their APIs. They should be looking at solutions uh, like Mosif and looking at solutions like these other threat management solutions like um, Traceable and, and Approve and a lot of these great solutions out there. Um, but you, first and foremost, what everyone needs to understand is you can't protect what you don't know you have. You need to know what, how many APIs do you have? What kind of data are they serving? Are they spacing the internet? Can I reach them from the internet or are they partner facing? You know, are we authorizing and authenticating? Okay, so 
we're giving you authenticated access to this, but are we authorizing what data you can request? All of these things are all very important. Knowing what kind of data your APIs are serving. If I have 1600 APIs, Larry, do you think I'm going to know which APIs are serving PII or PHI and which ones are serving PCI data? Like I should know that. Um, and there's no way I can memorize that. So I'm going to need a tool to do it. And, you know, I, my recommendation is to, to all of you out there is know what data is going to your APIs. Know what, you know, either interdicting it, looking at it, analyzing it, know what's going there, know what is taking the bandwidth from your APIs and what API requests are being sent. Be, get, instrument yourself with a tool that will give you the ability to look at it and take action Great. on it. Great. What a superb, uh, what a superb summary and takeaway um, from, from this interview. So as a fi my final question, where can our audience find out more about Alyssa and where are you speaking next? I know you're a, a very prolific uh, keynote speaker. Um, what's coming up for Alyssa and uh, what other resources out there uh, should our audience be following? Sure. So I, I would say that the primary vehicle for where I distribute my vulnerability research and content as a content creator and, and filmmaker is YouTube. So definitely subscribe to my YouTube channel and, and smash that, that bell icon for uh, notifications. Um, but um, also f follow me on Twitter and connect with me on LinkedIn. I loved nerding out on API security and, ha and hacking in general. Uh, I have a new book coming out on hacking APIs through Wiley is my second book. Um, I'm in the process of writing a screenplay for a new TV series. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on in my world and I definitely would urge everybody to just follow me, um, on YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Cause that's primarily where I'm at, unless they want to see pictures of my food. I'm on Instagram. I post pictures of my food there. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, and, uh, yeah, so, um, I appreciate all of you and, and as part of my network and followers and, and fans and, and, uh, you know, keep an eye out cause it's going to be a really exciting year. I'm going to be speaking at Hims next. Um, I would say arguably the world's largest healthcare conference. So I'll be keynoting there um, alongside some other amazing keynote speakers like A-Rod, uh, Michael Coates. Um, so yeah, I'll definitely see you at HIMSS if anyone wants to stop by and say hi. And I'm, I'm going to be also speaking at DEF CON. I'm speaking at over 30 conferences this year. So a lot of exciting things. I'm also keynoting at the upcoming Money 2020 conference which is really exciting. So yeah, definitely. And I will actually be posting my event schedule on my website here soon on alyssanite.com and nightinkmedia.com. So keep an eye out. Um, and again, the best way to hit me up is on social media. Great. Well, thank you very much, Alyssa, for your time today. And I'm sure our thank audience will really enjoy this podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it.